All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they are located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are I.
Okay, so we're sitting down with Dr. Drew Jameson here, which ironically, after Caesar um, kind of connected us, um, you know, obviously we're all in the same landscape, same space. We're trying to pump the same message out about, you know, all the different options with healthcare. Turns out that we kind of, we trained side by side in the same gym like 15 years ago, uh, almost actually even 20 years ago. Now, I didn't realize it till about a, a few minutes ago, or well, I realized it first. And, you know, like that just goes to show two things, like, how small the world really is and when paths are supposed to cross they're supposed to cross so um you know because obviously right now we're out in burnaby you know like this was one of the oldest gyms in langley that's now shut down just recently went out of business about um, eight months ago and you know the world has collided our worlds back together so uh dr drew welcome to the show hey man thanks for having me excited to be here so we were just talking about like a, a great way to be able to start because like I I can't stand traditional Western medicine. It has its place obviously in some regards, but I feel like for ninety percent of the things that we need medicine for, it's just not a suitable alternative or a suitable avenue of where we should be going. Um, and one of the big things with that is it, it starts from the initial person, like the intake. So what is it like when somebody walks in through the door of your practice? Sure. Really good question, and this is what differentiates us so much from the standard medical model. And just to give a bit of background of why I'm on this side of the fence is I was kicked around the system much like a lot of people that end up seeing me are. And there's frustration and there's disappointment and there's a lot of questions that go unanswered, right? And the process in the standard medical world is very quick, very rushed, and it's not very thorough. You're lucky to get five to seven minutes in a standard medical visit. And now I should say that when it's something emergent or acute, that's the system you want to be in. However, when it comes to like chronic degenerative health issues, that's not where you're going to get a lot of answers, right? You can't really figure out what's going on with someone, why they're feeling the way they are, why they might need all these medications, until you actually take the time to do a proper assessment and workup, listen to their story, ask the right questions, perhaps do the right diagnostic testing, and then figure out how to actually get them on the path to good health. So the standard medical model is really all about sick care, where we're all about health care. How do we actually boost someone's health? How do we reduce the need for drugs and surgeries? How do we get them to optimize their health? Because when people go for their standard medical visit, as I said earlier, you're lucky to get five minutes and you get one concern only per visit. Whereas in our workup, we spend at least 60 minutes on the first visit. And it's not just one concern. If someone wants to bring up three to five things that are bothering them, that are annoying them, that's great. They need to have a chance to talk about that so we can figure out where does that play in and how can we help them with it. And instead of just suppressing all the symptoms, we use the symptoms that people are experiencing as a way to guide treatment. How are we doing? Are the symptoms getting better? Are they getting worse? We don't just blindly suppress them, but we actually use them to guide what's going on. Because I always tell people that symptoms are whispers from the body and your body's talking to you and if you don't listen what starts as a whisper will eventually scream louder and louder and louder to the point where you have to do something about it or your body will just put you on your ass and so when people come to see us usually it's by referral usually they've heard something good from a friend or family member or maybe they followed along on social media and they've had that educational piece to the point where they're like hey this guy's talking my language i'm experiencing that very thing i need to go see him so i can do a proper workup and actually figure out what's going on because the answer or the treatment plan I was provided from another practitioner just wasn't what they were looking for. They, they knew deep down there was something more for them. 
And as I said earlier, I had those same frustrations where I was kicked around and I'm thinking, ah, oh, this can't be it. It can't just be like painkillers and scans and tests and stop doing the things you love. Like I thought that treatment plan was very short-sighted and I knew there was something more. So when I found naturopathic medicine personally, everything I knew about medicine was blown wide open and I was like, wow, there's this whole other side that no one ever told me about. So at first I was super excited, but I was equally pissed off because I'm thinking, why did no one mention this sooner? And I'm still telling people, this is 15 years now in the making about our medicine, how we can help, what we can do, how, how they can benefit. And it's 15 years of this and people still don't know the power of our medicine. So that's why I speak at every opportunity. I do countless interviews. I'll hop on any podcast and talk about our medicine because it quite literally saved me in my 20s. And it's been a, a huge godsend for my family. Uh, my parents are under their 70s now and they are in top-notch health. They're not on any medications. So I, I kind of was bred in a naturopathic dominant family and so I'm very thankful for that and this is something I want to share with everyone because most people that are stuck in the system with a chronic problem don't know there's other options and so it's first we got to get the word out there they got to know we exist then we got to educate them on where we fit in and how we can help and naturopathic doctors are primary care physicians so we can treat a wide variety of things we have incredible training for so many different conditions now most of us are known for three to five things because the list is very long of things that we treat and diagnose uh, from a profession standpoint but most people are focusing on three to five things that they're really known for and really good at so in my world I treat a lot of chronic pain sports injuries I use regenerative injection techniques do a lot of nutrition gut health uh, workups hormones sleep and then recently, obviously, with uh, lockdowns, quarantines, COVID, there's been a ton of stress, anxiety, and sleep problems. Again, you take a lot of these concerns to a hospital, a walk-in clinic, or a medical office. Those doctors are overrun. They're trying to deal with really, really sick people or emergent cases. And these chronic, you know, I have no energy. Uh, I don't sleep very well. Uh, I rolled my ankle years ago, and it's never been better. Those aren't really the top of their list. So they don't get the time they deserve, the patients are often dismissed, and then they just kind of leave feeling defeated, right? So that's where we come in, and that's why we exist, because we fill a very important gap in the healthcare system right now. And everyone always said growing up, and I'm a Canadian born and raised, we're like, oh, the, the healthcare system here is great, it's free, you don't have to pay anything for it. And I'm here to say that if you want good healthcare, you have to pay for it, like anything in this world. If you want amazing products or amazing service from someone or a business, you have to pay for it because the free system here is just that, it's free. And I think most people listening will agree, yeah, you don't have to pay for certain things, but is it getting you the result you desire? And in many cases, the answer is no. And that's again, like I said, why we exist, the gap we fill, and that's why we do incredible work because we don't have to overload our schedule with 50 or 70 people a day. We can see that you know, eight to 15 people and charge what we're worth and then spend the quality time the patient needs with them to figure out what's going on. We're not rushed, we're not overloaded. And that is just a system that I think works better for everyone, so it's a total win-win. And that is the naturopathic process uh, in a nutshell. And I know I've been chatting for a few minutes here to your original question, but that, that's really the essence of, of how we approach the cases. We're all about finding the cause, we use the symptoms to guide us, we don't suppress, we're trying to get people off drugs when possible. So it's, it's a very 180 approach to what people are used to. You know, and I, I think like the the biggest thing I want to touch on there's the facade that our healthcare system in Canada is free, yeah. but we're essentially paying for a system that's terrible. 
Correct. You know, we're just indirectly paying for it. So it feels free, but we're not getting the care that we actually need or really want. Yeah. You know, in a prime example, this means I've always felt this way. But even the CDC of BC released about three months ago, maybe two and a half months ago, um, they tweeted out, if you uh, have any symptoms or signs of COVID-19, the best thing that you can do is stay at home, drink plenty of fluids and get some rest. And I'm like, how many things do you go to the doctor for where that is just the standard advice given? Or even like what you said, where if you're only allowed to talk about one thing, but we all know that like this problem is connected to this, and then there's this, there's layers to it. You know, like just like how everybody's ever heard, there's levels to this game. Well, there's layers to your problems. You know, so you can't, if you go in and talk only about like one thing, you're only treated air quotes for that one thing. Well, now you're not addressing the other underlying problems, but now you've just created other problems that are going to stem from that because you're never finding the root cause. And as a patient, how are you supposed to know what information to be able to relate as the most important thing? Because that exacerbated problem is probably not necessarily the root, you know, but it takes naturopathic medicine to be able to go and say, okay, let's sit down and talk for an hour because this conversation may start going down Avenue A, but we're going to walk down K first and start peeling back these onions again because A, B, C, D, and F are just going to go away once we start conquering these problems. And I'm sure you've seen that a million times. All the time. All the time. And you can't compartmentalize things because I think what you said is really important where you could have three to five leading symptoms, but it's not always this like what's causing each one of these, but what's the one or two things that's causing all of them? Mm-hmm. And then you start fixing that and then those symptoms start to melt away. So yeah, you don't look at them as all these separate areas that you compartmentalize. All the systems in the body have a lot of crosstalk, right? And, and there's harmony and unison there. So yeah, you never just look at one thing blindly and go, okay, what are we going to do to fix that? And yeah, the narrative takes you interesting places, right? When you start listening to someone, tell their story, tell their journey, you have the occasional question as you go, it starts to navigate you in really interesting places. And Quite often that's therapeutic enough for them because they're like, I've been stuck with this problem for years and no one's ever asked me these questions. No one ever just sat there and listened. Countless times I'll just hear back from patients. They'll be like, hey, thanks for that visit. And just thanks for listening because they've never had that doctor relationship where they had a chance to actually get into any detail. It was always very like, what, what's going on? Give it to me quick. And then boom, they're out the door before they know it versus this. Wow, someone actually sat there and listened to what's going on. And that is very, very uh, healing and therapeutic in its own. And then it just gives us way more clues to figure out what's up. Well, and, you know, you made a, a really good point there. It's like sometimes like our our emotional issues will manifest themselves as physical pain. Yep. You know, so even simply sitting there and listening and talking to somebody it gives them that alleviation of symptoms saying like, maybe this isn't what I think it is. But when you just go to like, you know, standard walking clinic or your family doctor, it's like, well, I have this shoulder discomfort or, you know, like this gut pain or you know, something that's just like here prescription walk to the pharmacy next door and that's what as far as it goes but i'm sure that there's been a lot of people that you've just listened to that walked down they just had a little bit more zip in their staff they just felt a little bit more area that day and like the benefit of that is like exponentially where we just build a better connection as human beings but like we talked about before and as everybody knows doctors are taught to be able to break that patient uh doctor relationship not ever build it but you can realize how important that actually is for like understanding your patients, but not only actually treating them properly. Absolutely huge. It's all about relationship building rapport. That's a huge, huge level because if one doctor has great rapport and connection with a patient and another doctor doesn't, but say they give the same recommendations, which one do you think is going to work better? Right? Obviously the one that has a great relationship with their patient because they're connecting with them on a much deeper level. And as we were talking before we hit the record button here, 
I was told in school to kind of really keep that, you know, that professional boundary and keep it really separate and, you know, don't allow people too close. But as I said earlier, it's all about relationships in this world. And it's, it's actually been the exact opposite experience for me to just allow people in a little more and then vice versa happens, right? Um, being too rigid or, or keeping that firm boundary up, I, I think eventually backfires. And so that's why I decided to be accessible to people in the way I have been, do the social media the way I do, um, you know, answer messages in, 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 the, in the way I have. And that actually got me through the rough patch of quarantine and lockdown better than anything else because people were like, hey, he's my doctor, he's a professional, but I also connect with him on a deeper level and he's there for me if I need him. And, and just being available like that to people, I can see what it did my world through quarantine where I know a lot of colleagues and people were struggling because they had to shut down and close their doors and then go home and stay home and it's like okay how do I stay connected to my people how do I stay connected to my patients where for me nothing really changed because I've been kind of doing that all along and just really always focusing on fostering good quality uh, relationships with people still of course keeping the professional boundaries up but just being there for them a little more than they're used to and they're just like wow how cool is it that I can just you know flip this inquiry or this email or this message to my doctor and he gets back to me in a reasonable amount of time or how cool is it that I can see what he's doing on the weekend and, and how he's actually looking after himself and uh, you know people love that I post all the workout stuff and so that's me just leading by example right going that a lot of the recommendations I give to people I'm also doing right yeah. like there'd be a lot of cognitive dissonance there if I was not working out if I was you know doing all the things against what my recommendations for are to my patients which that's like the standard doctor experience yes. we go in this person is you know 40 50 60 pounds overweight looks terrible super run down yep. you can tell they're not healthy at all and then giving you advice on how to be able to live a, a healthier life right you know and you know I think like an important thing to bring up that you just mentioned there is that you know Although professionally you're being told, and a lot of people have probably obviously toted this line saying, you know, like, my profession tells me this, you know, my educators have taught me this, like, I need to be able to build this disconnect um, in this environment. But you listen to your intuition. Yep. Your intuition totally something different, which is a very big part of, like, you know, Eastern medicine. You know, like, listening not only to yourself, listening to the patients, you know, and you really then kind of just brought that all back around there saying, I'm going to go against the grain, which a lot of Eastern medicine is in oh. North America. You know, so you can really see, like, how, like, that is just really bred into you in your mind and, like, how you just approach life in oh, general. Right. Yeah, I've always been a little bit of, like, a, a rule bender, write your own playbook, so to speak, in this case. And it's not that I wasn't given great information along the way, but you're right, there was little bits and pieces where you're like, I don't know if that's gonna work for me and I'm gonna do it differently. And I have and it's done nothing but paid off in a really awesome way. So yeah, that's just like me kind of just, it's ingrained in me and you're right. I, I, I'm obviously in, in this profession for a reason because anyone that enrolls to become an naturopathic doctor is a little bit of a, re a rebel at the end of the day yeah. because the medical system is set up the way it is and if you enroll to become an ND, uh, you are standing for a lot of different principles than what the standard system is. So yeah, it's been a cool journey and, and I really love it. And yeah, I, I just, I, I can't say enough good things about it. So that's why I get up every day. I have passion and enthusiasm behind what I do and I'm you know, continue learning and improving to be a better doctor um, for my patients as well as myself. And then, like I said, just leading by example because I had too many of those experiences you talked about where you're in rushed medical offices. The doctor clearly doesn't look like they know their way around the kitchen. They're not exercising. They're burned out. Uh, they just don't take even take the time to barely introduce themselves. And just all those little relationship things that are so key were just missed and I was like that's the kind of doctor I don't want to be yeah. you know and then I met a naturopathic doctor and, and he just 
did everything the exact opposite of that. And I was like, that's how it needs to be. Just that feeling. You look forward to seeing them. You look forward to catching up with them. The treatments are awesome. You always leave there feeling better than when you went in. And I just knew that that was the experience I wanted to give people as well. So once I sorted all my health concerns out, I knew my next step in the journey was to bring that to as many people as possible with all the things that helped me. And so it's that firsthand experience and then the fact that I'm living it and breathing it every single day. Um, people people can tell, right? Because people will know if you're not, right? There's just, yeah. there'll be a certain energy or a certain something about you that you're, that you're not in alignment with. And so I'm always keeping a close eye on that where it's like, am I doing the things I need to do, the things that my patients need to do? And is that all on the same page or not? So yeah, that's, that's been a big driving force for me with this. And it, it's, uh, it's been a fun ride because I feel better now at 35 than I did at 27, 28, which is a really crazy thing for me to say. But it's the honest truth because I've really, really stepped up my game personally. And then that, in a sense, has been inspiring and motivating to my patients as they watch as well. See, and, you know, there, there's like 1,800 things I want to talk about here. But, like, the, the <laughs> primary one, real quick, is the, the essence of numerical age. You know, because like that is something that we've all bought into for so long where like we look at age as degenerative. Like, you know, like I'm going to be at this worse off shape as I age and that's just the global expectation. But I love the narratives of seeing like all the people get in better and better and better shape, better and better health, you know, than what they ever have been, you know, better than my twenties around forty, better than my twenties around fifty. Like, exactly. you know, I was in Manning Park, like twenty k deep into back, and I ran into three, like two women and a man. They're probably in their mid seventies, you know, just like forging along, you know, like. And you would, if you seen them on the street, you wouldn't think that they barely be able to make it up the stairs. Yep. And these people are like three mountains into the backcountry, and it was just like that's the stuff that you want to see. Or like what you just said, you know, like there is that opportunity, but it just goes to show the defeatist attitude that we've allowed, you know, because it's all based on, you know, like pensions and retirement and 60, 65. And I can just give up on life when I hit this age and, you know, how much like poor diet, poor, you know, like nutrition, poor lifestyle. They've all just accumulated into these lifestyle factors that have just allowed us to give up at this numerical age. And I just, I love when people say that because the more people that say those, there's alternatives and the more people that say that things can get better, they will get better. And I'm walking and living proof. Those are the things because those are the windows. Those are the lights. Those, that's the end of the tunnel that a lot of people need to see because you like people like you, people like me, we're still pulling along a pretty vast or the vast majority of people these days. And that's a, a really tougher perspective for people to understand that if I put in less work, I can actually achieve more when it comes to healthcare because we're so used to looking at when things get so bad, you know, that it just becomes this arduous process. But if you just do those things every day, like I said, just keep going every day that when in 10 years from now, you can be like, I'm in better shape now in my mid forties than when I was at my mid thirties. And I sat around telling everybody that I was in better shape than in my mid twenties, you know, like those are the key things. And then, you know, like, I want to, I want to start again because I know that we're going to get into some serious weeds here, but I want to start breaking things down like individually. We were talking about cold baths before yep. um, we started getting into it. What's your perspective? Have you done it? Do you do it? Like where, where are you at on it? Because uh, like this is just something that I'm heavily invested into right now and I've been dying to rack your brain about it. No, I love it. So in school, we had several modules in what's called hydrotherapy. And in our history and philosophy classes, a lot of the old school naturopathic doctors, they used water for everything. So it's pretty powerful stuff. The thing is, there's nothing really patentable about it. It's hard to make money off of. And 
they used to cure and fix some of the craziest things with cold exposure. They'd throw some of the sickest patients, and these were stories we were taught in our history and philosophy classes from Dr. Rain. It was a, a book called Elder Doctors, and he would just read us. It was like story time almost, I remember. And the doctors would throw people into some really cold rivers and baths to cure some crazy stuff. Because they found pretty quickly that it stimulates the vital force. And the vital force is in all of us, and in some it's stronger than others. And in, in kids and younger people, it's uh, vibrating at a much higher level. And then as you fade and, and head into your elder years, you have less vital force. But one of the best ways to stimulate it is just cold exposure. And contrast is another big one. People that live in warm climates all the time, it's probably even more important that they get some cold exposure. We get enough of that up here in the winter, but to really shock the system with an ice bath is incredibly powerful. So it'll stimulate the immune system. It'll certainly wake you up. Ending a shower on cold is a phenomenal way to wake you up. It'll give you a bigger jolt to your system than a shot of caffeine will. And there's actually an area of the brain that lights up in particular when you get cold exposure, and it releases neurotransmitters that help battle depression. Yeah. So one of the best ways to battle depression is cold exposure, oddly enough, to really just shock and stimulate the system because then the brain actually shoots out neurotransmitters to stabilize your mood. And obviously from a recovery standpoint, the first time I found cold exposure was in university. I was playing football. It was two days, middle of August, hot, and you're doing two practices a day and your legs feel like jello. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course you go to bed and wake up and you can barely get out of bed and guess what? You got to do two more practices that day. The only thing that regenerated me and actually got me my legs back was the cold exposure. So they, they had the ice baths, right? And it was at about five degrees, which is pretty chilly. And they actually had a, a little jet or a motor inside of it that would circulate the water, which makes it even more cold. Because you know if you sit perfectly still in a cold bath, it's easier to acclimate, right? But this would actually circulate the water and make it feel that much more chilly. And that obviously would squeeze out all the blood and inflammation and stagnation and lactic acid. And then we'd do like a little dip in the hot tub and then we'd go back to the cold. And that was a phenomenal way from an athletic standpoint to get rid of any sort of, you know, micro tearing of the muscles, um, overuse, overtraining. Because at that time we had no choice. You had two weeks to prepare for the season and that was that. So you chucked in as much as you could. And so the ice baths were incredibly valuable there. I used to do them a lot more um, when I would live out in Langley. I haven't done them lately since living in Burnaby the last few years. But cold exposure in lakes is great. We did some glacial hikes the last couple weekends and I always encourage people that if it's there, like cannonball into it because it's really beneficial. And it teaches your body to stay cool under stress because one of the hardest things to do when you enter cold water is, is breathe, right? You start to hyperventilate and just like you, you lose it a bit, right? So if you can control your breathing, it tells your body and your physiology that when this sort of stuff happens, when this stress on the body happens, you don't have to freak out. Like we can self-regulate. And obviously you can get into the, the nitty gritty of it and go down rabbit holes with people like Wim Hof and stuff. So I've followed his stuff loosely over the last few years and, and the stuff he's been able to do with his physiology under these cold extreme conditions is pretty impressive. So yeah, we use hydrotherapy all the time. I'll use it for any sports injury, sprained ankles, uh, works great for the forearms and wrists. And I tell people about this. I'm like, you ever done any like contrast bass or ice bass or anything like that? And it's, it's still a relatively like untapped topic for a lot of people. And that's kind of how it's had a role in my life over the years. Uh, do you guys have anything at the clinic? We don't. Uh, some clinics do have hydrotherapy wings or areas yeah. where they will use uh, cold towels, uh, sine waves, ice baths, things like that. I know the massage schools, they have rotations in hydrotherapy as well. 
So I give it mostly as home care with respect to the, the cold plunges, showers, and then just fill up basins or use the sink or something like that. And all those are just easy ways for people to get it in. But cryotherapy is another one, um, the, the, the dry, I don't know if you've ever done yes. the stand-up one. Uh, I've done a few of those downtown before, like three minutes. And uh, well used in Asia for just inflammation, arthritis, joint pain, stuff like that. There's one up at Sparkling Hills, which I think goes from minus 15 to minus 60 to minus mid 100s yeah. somewhere around there and again you only get about three minutes in there and that chills you to the bone but but really really powerful stuff for sure and i think those extremes and challenges to the body it just builds resiliency and immunity strength over time so i really like the stuff yeah how long did you guys used to sit in the ice baths with the circulating water when you were playing football like was there would just go to you want to get out or do you guys have what, what was prescribed to you guys? Yeah, we kept it pretty simple. It'd be about a minute, maybe a minute and a half cold, and yep. then you'd go a couple minutes hot, and you'd do about three cycles. Okay. So it certainly wasn't 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes uh, where I know some people really get into like a deep sort of relaxation with it. But no, it was usually pretty damn cold by then because the circulation really made it that much more yeah. chilly. And then they dump as much ice as they could in there, so that's about a minute or two. Yeah. yeah. The reason why I asked because um, – uh, like I regularly have Dr. Josephine Warsek who uh, like she's like say with Wim Hof and did a lot of his original uh, studies like from a physiological standpoint because she has her PhD um, in molecular biology and specializes in cold therapy and uh, so like we've gone back and forth quite a bit because we actually custom designed a tank that has uh, circulating water it's a double walled stainless steel insulated tank we circulate the water at minus three because we put epsom salts in to drop it below zero plus circulating and we do eight minute stints um four yeah four times a week well in a minimum of four times a week and uh, so like we've done a, a, we've done a lot of talking, but there's just not a lot of research on for one that because the five degrees is the link is that's typically what water will cool down to with ice dumped in it so that's for the five and nobody really knows a specific amount of time the problem that we got because I get my DEXA scans done every two months is that my visceral fat was increasing. So we thought that um, that there may be an increase in visceral fat to be able to protect the tissue, well, the organ tissue, um, because we're sitting there for so long to be able to keep myself warm. Now, it turns out I was also doing that when I was experimenting with diets because the you know, last six months I've done a new diet every month, so carnivore, keto, vegan, blah, 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 went through all it. And it was just all the excess of carbohydrates on the vegan diet that actually did that because in subsequent months after then I dropped almost all that visceral fat that I gained. Um, but the one thing like what you were saying and, you know, like, and I think you alluded to this, but maybe we could expand upon it because I'm sure that you probably know way more about this than I do. I actually feel like I never get sore because of the fact that all the dry blood being pulled like out of my extremities, being pulled in my abdominal cavity, allows for like a reoxygenation of the blood before it floods the tissue again when you reheat. Because we go between um, the tank and hot tub, and like we bounce back and forth. And I've kind of measured it out to for like an upregulation that it's about a four to one. So for every one minute, about four minutes in the one oh five to kind of get back to homeostasis. But by clockwork, eight hours later. If I'm not laying down somewhere to be able to take a nap, like the amount of energy that it takes, we're trying to find a way to be able to calculate it. Because um, Peter Schweigley owns uh, Body Cop Imaging downtown, we've been tracking it, but like it burns so much energy just trying to because re-regulate the bikes, and we've been experimenting without going in the hot tub after. And it takes about an hour to stop shivering, and then it almost feels like that um, your fascia holds the cool but your muscle tissue doesn't because you 
I feel like I have an exoskeleton of cool. It's weird. There's so, cool. but the only thing is nobody has answers to it though. Yeah. You know, but just knowing somebody who's done it before, like you're an athlete, you're obviously investing in healthcare. Like, like, am I full of shit with all of it? Like, like just throw something out there. I know it's throwing you under the bus and putting you on the spot, but like, what do you think about all that? Yeah. You have studied and looked at the timings a little bit more than I have for sure. And, and I'm not sure there's a great reference at this point to know it's exactly, you know, four to one. Yeah. We did one to two. So a minute in cold, we do at least two minutes in hot before going back in. Those were the parameters we used roughly. I mean, we would try and tough it out in there as long as we could and then just circulate back. But to give you any like hard data or exact research on it, it's tough to say. You, you make me want to dive into some of my old hydrotherapy manuals and see if any of that's in there. I could ask a few of my elder doctors and, and give you a bit more of a firm answer on that. But, I mean, you said it yourself, the amount of energy required by your body to reheat it up, I mean, th- that's a nice benefit as well. We didn't even get into the amount of fat burning that comes from mm-hmm. it. And Tim Ferriss was the first one that introduced this to me back in, like, 2010. And he was saying that the brown fat is essentially what you were saying, a response yeah. to cold exposure. And that typically, you know, as we started wearing clothes and evolving, that we needed less and less brown fat to keep warm. But certainly, if you're going to whack yourself with cold exposure on a regular basis, you'll see these changes, right? Mm-hmm. You'll see well, more visceral fat, more brown fat. Um, that's an okay kind of fat, though, is what we found, right? It's that it's the deep visceral stuff you want to watch out for, but that little bit of white fat and brown fat is necessary for obvious reasons, right? It's why you can't walk around at 3 or 4% body fat all year round and feel amazing. Like, there's a certain amount of essential fat that you want just from a hormone, energy, and health standpoint to have. But that certainly cold exposure could play a role in, in leaning out just because of the, 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 the after effects. Yeah. The thermic effects your body go through to reheat, that's crazy, right? It's like a hardcore, high-intensity cardio session. You get benefit for 24 hours after that because you've driven such a deficit into your tissues, right? And now it's like your whole metabolism needs you know, 24 hours or whatever you said, eight hours plus just to kind of get back to homeostasis because the body fights really hard to do that. So, yeah, to circle back to your original question, I'm not sure the exact parameters, what is the ideal, kind of go off feel as well too. I mean, what we found is when we were doing the one-minute cold, two-minute hot, and our, our legs would regenerate. You know, you'd go walking around the rest of the afternoon and go, damn, that feels way better. And then you're ready for the second practice go back do it again you would sleep like a baby we were pushing extremely hard during those times though so yeah yeah doesn't it make you realize kind of like what what we're capable of when we actually just allow the human experience to be able to connect with the natural experience that we're supposed to and like this is kind of like a point that i make with everybody is like we've inhibited like we've sanitized life so much i'm going to get in my 68 to 72 degree car from my 68 to 72 degree house to go to my 68 to 72 degree office. And like these environments, I'm going to put a jacket on because it feels a little chilly. I got this little chill and we're so scared of being cold. Like when you pull everybody, like they don't even remotely like to be cold at all. Warm is fine. Hot's a little uncomfortable. It's nowhere near as bad as being cold. However, I try to say to anybody, even if there wasn't the increased recovery, if even if there wasn't the conversion from white, uh, fat cells to brown fat cells you know like all these things the norepinephrine dump that i get i you can't even explain that and i'm sure that you've gone through it too where like it just like 
you can't help but smile. And if anything, that if you a little bit of discomfort for like 12 hours of smiling, if you know, like know. five minutes in the tank for 12 hours of smiling, like that alone, because you perceive everything in life differently. Yeah, that's it the is. neurotransmitter I was saying earlier. I think it comes from the locus surrealis. When you get cold exposure, it just like literally shoots it into your brain. And then you're right, like you're laughing, you're giggling, you're feeling good. Yeah. Um, 30, 40 seconds of discomfort to end your shower on 30 seconds of a cold mist is not asking a lot, but you're absolutely right. People sweat me all the time for that. They'll fight you on it. I hate being cold. I don't want to be cold. And, and you're right. That's our society. And I think what you said makes a lot of sense too, because I don't have tons. This is mostly anecdotal, but I had a few teachers over the years point this out that when people live in fair weather climates, say it lives like a Florida or a California, it's just hot all year round. You'll find a lot of people down there. They don't, they don't know what cold is. They don't experience it. And certainly when they do, they're like, wow, it really shocks their body. But then she was noticing a little bit more of thyroid and metabolism conditions come up because if you can't properly regulate your temperature or you don't need to, your thyroid gland will just start to function at maybe a lower level. And so that's why it's really important that not only that we get hot and sweat and exercise and heat up and get sun exposure, but that we do, I absolutely agree, have to challenge the colder end of the spectrum at times as well because if your body's just always locked in there and it, it never gets a push, it's like... You know, never getting sick for four years. That time you get sick, you're going to get your ass kicked. Yeah. Because the immune system has not had a proper workout in a long time. Same thing with the uh, the thermal effects in your body. If it doesn't get too hot and have to cool you down, and if it doesn't get cold shocks once in a while and have to warm you back up, that I think long term could harm your metabolism because it's just not going to be ready when it happens. Yeah. And then you get that cold exposure, you get to that place, and it's like your resiliency is way, way down. And that, I think, all goes back to the immune system as well. So it's just another way to strengthen the resiliency of the body and boost the immune system and then also regulate the thyroid. So there has been some observations and theories that lack of exposure, either really hot or really cold, can, can harm your health long term. And cold at night is actually a trigger for sleep. Yeah. If you actually look when we used to live in caves and it would just get cold at night, it's actually a trigger for the body to fall asleep and have a good, deep, restful sleep. You know, you drop by a degree or so. Naturally, that's supposed to happen. But you're right, people are just so, like, to the degree and tons of blankets and the room is really warm and everything's just perfect. That might not necessarily be a good thing. You see, and it, and it goes back to this. It is conversations like this that that it is always shocking to me that then when somebody hears something, it sounds so foreign. They don't want to trust it. So they hear us talking. And there's some of, like, those two ladies on the bench over there, you know, like, there's, like, oh, these guys tell me this cold So I'm going to go ask my doctor. And then they go out to their dog and they're like, oh, those guys are full of shit. Yeah. You know, but the only thing is, but there's be, there's an alarming amount of actual scientific evidence. You know, whether you want to go on even simply just PubMed and research for your own. Like, it's there. Like, there's an abundance of it. It's not like it's wrong. But people just don't want to admit it. Like, why do you think and how do you think we got stuck in that lane of anything natural? Because, you know, like, we know growing up in, like, you know, the West – that's like, unless it's like, you know, traditional, like Western medicine, don't even talk about it because it's so taboo. You should just be embarrassed for bringing it up. But then it's like when we've evolved over tens of thousands of years in nature, we don't think that there's going to be positive physiological responses from cold and hot, anything that's not neutral because there's nothing neutral about life in the elements. But why are we so scared to talk about it? Or even why are we so scared to believe it? I think sometimes we just have a natural tendency to do what's you know, easy and fun and convenient and not too hard, right? So as soon as you introduce something like that, a radical idea, that right away people get that hesitancy and fear around and they're just like, well, 
I, I don't want to go there. It, it sounds like it's going to be too uncomfortable, too unknown. And you're absolutely right. When we're living in the West, we're up against the standard medical model. And, and until these things are recognized by a lot of these, um, you know, whether it be uh, programs, uh, you know, healthcare models, and, and these paradigms become like a staple, they're always going to be fought with resistance, right? Because, like you said, they'll they'll go ask their doctor or someone they know that works in healthcare at a hospital, and it'll just be so dismissed. So right away, it loses all credibility because the standard system hasn't got that far yet. And you know, I bet if we give it some time, there'll be a lot more hydrotherapy and cold exposure clinics than than we'll know what to do with in the next ten to twenty years. Because you're right, the amount of research books and seminars and weekend escapes you can do around this have exponentiated since I was a kid and now in the last 30 years it's all of a sudden like a massive topic in the healthcare world so it's probably just a matter of time like I said I still think it comes back to funding and what's patentable what's what's billable you know because it's all about the bucks and so I think once that is sorted out then it will start to make its way in but I think naturally humans with respect to change and things that are difficult and hard like there's definitely some some uh, you know, just hold back with that. And, and, and the uncertainty, I think, worries a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. See, and, you know, you brought up something that always triggers a thought in my mind, too, that, that it's pretty widely known and accepted that medical textbooks are about 10 or 15 years out of date, you know, when med students are in school being taught. And then that's kind of where they get stuck, typically, um, is then propagating that message as they continue on, like, as a doctor. Not, say, more like in traditional Western medicine, what I'm getting at. But in natural medicine... The books and the teachings that we learn from are tens of thousands of years old, yeah. you know, but it's, again, we want to go back and we know it's not a secret. Like doctors will admit, yes, we learn outdated information. Then we teach outdated information because that's kind of what we have to do because of liability reasons and, you know, the try and tested method. But we just won't go back to something that we know has been proven. It's been refined. The system has been around forever. Even when you challenge people to think there's still countries in the world where they leave their kids outside in strollers in the middle of the winter time. Well, they go into a, a restaurant and eat and people think like you should have your children taken away from that. It's like, but you're giving them, you know, a healthier white blood cell count. You're increasing their immune system. You know, they're getting a better, deeper quality sleep. They're going to be happier baby because you're getting that norepinephrine. It's like all of these things. And, and that's just, that is a fraction of it. That's a hairline of the entire pie when it comes to natural medicine, which you know better than I do. But it's even something as simple as that. We're even just admitting that this information is outdated. But the, again, this general population wants to walk in and the doctor's like, well, I know I'm teaching outdated information, but just believe me, this is this is the correct path to be able to go down. And that's where that blind trust, you know, and it doesn't seem like I don't want to believe that human beings have been that easily duped or else we would have never made it here like when do we go back to like listening to like our intuition our gut and saying like there is something fundamentally wrong here especially when people seek out somebody like you and they just get that breath of fresh air and it's like this person actually just talked to me because if you went right now if we went to the walking clinic and said okay like i want to come in because my elbow is sore do you mind if i ask you about cold therapy first no no one just one thing let's just keep it simple you know like But, you know, when they come in and sit down with somebody, it's like, yes, let's have it. Like, let me tell you about how I used to do this. Let me tell you about how I would do it right now if it was a little bit more accessible. Like, yes, I understand that you're interested because you're being drawn to that. Because there's a part of you as a human being that just wants to be cold no matter how uncomfortable it is. Yeah. So let's get into some some diet and nutrition because of the fact that I just told you I just finished doing this um, this 
like experiment, you know, tracking blood, tracking, you know, blood pressure, biological age, metabolic age, you know, dex scan, like bone density, like the whole bit. Um, and pretty much found out that carbohydrates of any kind, fruits, vegetables, grains, everything is like the worst thing for my body. Not that it's going to be the worst thing for everybody, just so happens to be the worst thing for my so out of all of this, what we've all learned out of all the professionals that have been tracking this me is that um, about 70% meat-based protein, 30% um, plant-based fats, okay. and like the best multivitamin, multimineral on the planet. So I started taking uh, Total Human by Onnit, uh, and then once every two weeks doing like an IV drip because I've realized that I'm like, yes, I need the vitamins and minerals. Um, that obviously are going to come from, you know, like the fruits and vegetables. There's a lot of other reasons why you should eat them too, obviously. But um, but just at least getting those micronutrients, that that when you talk about human optimization, like recovery, performance, you know, um, sleep quality, bone density, and everything. Like when I went after two months of getting back on the regular protocols, increasing my bone density by 4%. Peter said it usually takes the average person a year to be able to do that. Um What's your thoughts on that? Because I would have never suggested any of that to anybody until like we did this. Made me realize how full of shit that most of us are for telling everybody like what we're telling them. Like I just I've come to like this crossroads of like where what I used to believe, but what we just found out. Like, and then I started running experiments with um, just regular vegetables, you know, like cucumbers, carrots, and just the little bit of inflammation. Not, but in until you really know what feeling good feels like. And then you enter like these, these, you know, like raw vegetables into the diet. I was like, Oh my God, like that little bit bloated or like, yep. you know, like the abs are kind of like, you know, like, um, like flushed over. I mean, I'm not as lean, you know, like a little bit more groggy. I'm, I'm like a little step behind in squash, you know, like, like all these little things I just started to pick up on that, that are just ever so slight. Yep. Um, like what are your thoughts on all that? I have many actually. Yeah. <laughs> Nutrition is uh, one of the main things we do as naturopathic doctors, and the saying is this, it's not just what you eat, it's what you absorb. So when you asked earlier about like where does the micronutrients fit into this, and that really is everything, because that's what's directing all the physiology, all the cells in your body, all these enzyme reactions, is the micronutrients, right? And we get not just energy from our food, but we get these incredibly important micronutrients. So we are constantly figuring out what's the optimal diet for this person. How well do they tolerate carbs? What's their micronutrient status like? If it's low, why is it low? Is there absorption issues? Is there like a, you know IBS or IBD or a celiac or some other gut infection going on in there that's robbing you of your absorption, digestion capacity and um, decreasing your micronutrient levels? So this is where we get into the high-end testing and investigative work with people because Anyone could find a lot of information online. You want to do a keto diet, you want to do a carnivore diet, you want to do a, a raw food diet, you want to do an all-cooked diet. It doesn't really matter. Like The blueprints and outlines are there. If you want to go find that stuff and run a trial on it, great. And if you feel better on it, awesome. But where I take it up a notch with people is I go, all those diets are great for the right person in the right setting at the right time, but what is the ideal diet for you? And, and I think you touched on a few things already where it's just like people will universally agree that a lot of fruits and vegetables are just across the board healthy for everyone. And I'll say that's not always the case because we will do high-end testing and determine that people have sensitivities to like a cucumber or celery or just a random fruit that most people would think there's no problem with that. But in that person, it's causing low-grade amounts of inflammation. It's maybe perpetuating leaky gut. It may be firing up their eczema issues. It may be causing joint pain. And so when you really look at what someone's sensitive to and build their diet around things that they digest really well, 
big things happen. And then you do another layer and look at the micronutrients and you go, okay, you're eating a great diet, but why are your cells starved of a specific vitamin? Or why is this amino acid lower? Whoa, you talked about bone mineral density. So that needs a lot more than calcium. And people don't realize this because they're just being told by the, you know, the people that are lobbying the dairy farmers that just eat your calcium and you'll be fine. I'm like, well, what about vitamin D3? What about vitamin K2? What about strength training, right? What about uh, phosphorus and magnesium? All these wonderful nutrients that you need to build strong bones. Collagen would be another one, so protein. What about those levels as well? And if those are low or any one of those is low, that could explain why someone such as yourself, a young, healthy guy, might have not the right level of bone mineral density that we'd expect to see in someone your age. And I have another patient where we were doing a similar workout with. He's my age, and he came back like borderline almost osteopenic. And it's like, you would never think that. But you know, you, you run his hormone panel, you look at the uh, micronutrients, and you're like, well, you're missing a few key things here that are involved in bone remodeling. And none of this is gonna get picked up in the standard system because the doctor is probably not gonna run this level of depth with respect to testing. And he just didn't fit the picture, but he's working with yeah. friend Peter as well with the body scan stuff. And he sort of sniffed that out in initially. And I'm like, yeah, there's gonna be something else we need to figure out here. And that's when we did the micronutrient and hormone stuff. And it's like the follow-up test has been nothing but awesome because he's just slowly getting better, stronger bones, stronger bones balancing the hormones, uh, improving energy, and just overall feeling a lot better. So this is where I add those extra layers for people because I don't really have a problem with any of those diets at face value, but what they miss is the, spe the specificity and like the, okay, this paleo diet list of foods, it's a great starting place, but is there any ones in there that are inflammatory for you? And past that, is there any micronutrient gaps that you have? And it could be for a number of reasons. Like I said, absorption issues, maybe there's a genetic predisposition to it. Um, meal timing, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a lot of things to consider there, but this is sort of that high-end stuff that I add to really customize it, individualize it. That's one of the mandates of our medicine is, you know, there's no one treatment plan that's the exact same because once you start to see what someone is made up of or what they might be missing, then it becomes their custom plan going forward to fix it. And so that's where I add this extra little bit for these diets because uh, there's there's holes in all of them. I don't think there's any one of those you could just pick off the shelf and say this is perfect exactly the way it is. Uh, I've been really keen and, and interested in the carnivore diet. You said you did a month of that. And so I've been a big fan of Dr. Sean Baker's work. I grabbed his book not too long ago and I've been watching this very uh, curiously over the last little while because I'm not a doctor that I, I never wanted to be the doctor that uh, buried his head in the sand and just said like yeah. I know what I know and I don't have to go any further and everything in that diet goes against what I was taught in school right because it's all about like the phytonutrients and the fruits and vegetables and eat lots of fiber and I found myself in this last year because I just want to remain open I think anyone with a really really closed mind it's like that's a huge detriment to you uh, and your character so just keep an open mind like don't turn a blind eye to any of this stuff so I've just been watching and reviewing the case studies and just being blown away by it quite frankly and again it goes completely against everything I was taught and I've learned some really key little takeaways from it here and I'll use elements of you know what I've learned to help tweak treatment plans with patients. Like I used to be like the crazy high fiber doctor. Now I realize that sometimes when people overdo it, they're gonna feel a lot crappier and certain things need to be steamed longer than others. And there's certain high gas 
fruits and vegetables that most people, if their gut's not functioning at 100%, won't digest very well. And so, you know, I've just been keeping up with it because the nutrition world is always evolving and there's new books that come out every year in it. So like I said, I don't shy away from them. I, I buy them all, I read them all, and I stay as informed as I can. And it's crazy, my recommendations, you know, I've been a doctor now for five years and they've changed. I think of what I would tell people in my first or second year of practice, very different than what I'm suggesting now. But I think anyone is, uh, is that's doing the same stuff year after year, not growing, not changing, not expanding, that's a problem, right? So I say that in a good way where it's like, I knew what I knew at that moment, but I'm continually learning and upgrading my skills and then I'm able to, to change you know, my treatment plans and approaches with people in a beneficial way. And, and it's, it's been a cool journey with that. So yeah, I, I, I stay on top of all those things. And that's why when people bring those to me, oh, should I do keto or should I do, should I do that? I go, probably want to figure out what you digest best and if there's any micronutrient gaps we want to clean that up and that usually is a really really good place to start there's some old quotes by the really old school medical practitioners where they're like all diseases have two things in common excess toxicity and micronutrient deficiencies like period if you want to go super simple with it it's just like a build up of toxins in the tissue and body and just dwindling micronutrient levels and it's like if you start figuring that out and you'll get the person back to health. And I don't even care what the disease or diagnosis is there. If you start to get the toxins out and lowered and build up their nutrient levels, it'll start to patch themselves up. It's pretty cool. So in all fantastic information, I, I, I don't know if everybody else is going to pick this out, but the one thing that I noticed with um, uh, natural health practitioners, doctors, that the humility that comes along with knowing that you don't have all the answers, willing to change, willing to be able to re-educate, willing to be able to change opinions, which is so different than, again, Western medicine, where it's the, this is just the way that it is. You know, like this is, not saying that Western doctors aren't, aren't humble, but they're humble in a different way. Not humble is that, okay, I was wrong last time you came in. This is why I was wrong. But this is what I learned to be able to help you in the future. You know, and I feel like that is a big part out there because, again, like what we talked about before is that, like, I felt like I now feel like a fraud telling everybody for the last 15 years, but I've been telling everybody in regards to nutrition versus what I just found out now, because after like Dr. Paul Saladino said, you know, you only need fiber if you're taking fiber. Now I'm like, interesting thing to be able to say. And then, so then on this carnivore diet, I'm like, I have never in my life felt like somebody pressure washed my insides. I now know I have no idea what it ever felt like to actually feel clean and pure from my neck down to my waist. It felt fantastic. And I can't even explain it. Or just what satiation actually feels like. To be able to walk by. And this is my thing. But the, the biggest difference between the carnivore diet and the vegan diet just is strictly is the battles you're going to face. On the carnivore diet, I could walk past anything. Not even care. Wouldn't even. There'd be a big fat juicy steak to a piece of chocolate cake. And I wouldn't want anything in between or either one of those. And, but when you were satiated, you were satiated and, and that was it. Yep. But on a V, when I was on the vegan diet, no matter how disgustingly full that I was, I'd walk up, I'd go put the plate in the sink, I'd see something on the counter, more food of what I just ate that I couldn't not eat anymore. I'm like, ah, there's room for a little bit more. Yeah. Or those vegan cookies or the vegan brownies, you know, like there was, there was always room for something more. And that was really tough for me is because I realized how much carbohydrate controls your mind yeah. you know like no matter like no matter how much willpower i had i'm like well it's a part of the diet i'm like but you're full like you're like you want to throw up 
but you're telling yourself there's room for more. Like there's a fundamental problem here with this diet, that alone. Because if that is how we lived, we would never be here because we would have killed each other looking for food. You know, so again, just like the two things, like actually feeling it, feeling clean and pure and then feeling actual satiation, like that, that, those two things to me have been a huge selling case for the carnivore diet. I just felt like I know how good I feel, a little bit of coconut oil, avocado, you know, some pistachios, cashews, you know, like things like this. I need those in my diet and I understand like the benefit of them and I now know through like a bunch of the research that I've done, I kind of vaguely knew this before, but by looking at the amount of concentration of um, micronutrients in organ meat, you know, like kind of like pound for pound, let's say, versus in like fruits and vegetables, it's way better to eat the organ meat to be able to get the micronutrients than it is to be able to eat the fruits and vegetables if you're only looking at micronutrient levels. Correct. Liver in particular, more nutrient dense than any fruit or vegetable. You can look at these charts, they're widely available online and people are usually surprised to hear that, right? And the concept of the appetite suppression and satiation, it is probably the number one thing people need to consider because, again, I don't care what diet you're on, but if the diet doesn't keep you full and you can't manage cravings, you'll never last on it. Mm -hmm. You will break down and cheat and stuff your face with whatever else. If you can't control hunger, if you can't feel full, and you succumb to cravings, it's just doomed to failure from the start, right? So that's why some of these work really, really well. And what, what suppresses our hunger really well? We should probably talk about a few things. And I learned years ago from a wonderful doctor, Kevin Millay, uh, the importance of red meat. And because it's just nutrient dense, you know, you compare it to turkey and chicken, it's laughable. They all have the same amount of protein per serving, but the micronutrients in red meat is crazy, right? It's got creatine and carnitine and zinc and selenium and um, creatine. It's like just amazing nutrients that... And also a really bad name. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's you demonized, can't get more, right? Yeah. Iron, B12, all these wonderful things in there that people want to buy all these separate supplement bottles for, and I'm like, it's right there in the meat product. But it's demonized, right? It causes colon cancer, it causes heart disease, and a lot of this stuff is fake news and unfounded because when you find high-quality meats, it's like... I give it medicinally to my patients all the time, and they do way better on it. And they're like, oh, thank God I don't have to eat, like, plain ground turkey anymore. This tastes so much better. And I always knew from a sports uh, athletic background that creatine was a wonderful supplement. And then to, to realize you get so much of that from your meats, it's like, that's been a game changer for me. So I've added a lot more over the last two years. Uh, I've got my patients to add a lot more. So I'm very much a, a high-quality meat proponent. And if someone's coming to me and they need uh, recommendations on the best vegetarian and vegan and vegetarian approach for them, I'm probably not the best doctor to work with them on that. Because um, as you said, I, I've seen it, you know, do detrimental things to people. Um, My they, they hit a wall yeah. at some point. Yeah, and to me, the the immediate and like this was within uh, three to four days on both sides. And like, obviously all the results have all been posted online. So it's not even like people can't even argue with it anymore. Is that within two or three days on the uh, carnivore diet and the vegan diet, my blood pressure was never better, like optimal range, almost the entire month cool. when I was on the carnivore diet, vegan diet, exactly opposite, almost grade one hypertension for the entire month. Yeah. Cause of the carbs and the sugar and the insulin. And then that usually jacks up blood pressure. So again, I'm not surprised to hear that. And but yeah, think of how many people are on, you know, like statins, like like blood pressure medication simply because an overconsumption of carbohydrates totally. and demonized meat products. Exactly. And that's what they're told by their doctor. That's the standard treatment plan. And you're right. They're using old school treatment plans. 
The thing is, though, they're almost bound to it because from a legality standpoint, they kind of get caught between a rock and a hard place, right? If they venture too far out on the branch, it's like it's giving the uh, profession, the colleagues, everyone kind of gets uh, you know, a bit of a bad name for it because it's like, well, the standard of care is this. You were taught this. You're legally bound to tell the patient that, even if deep down they kind of know. And there's been tons of interviews with medical doctors in the oncology world and the you know, cardiovascular world, and it's like, would you do the treatments that you give your patients every day if you were in the same situation? And a lot of times they'll be like, no, I wouldn't. Yeah. Because I see what it, what it does. I see the ill effects and the side effects and how it actually doesn't fix the problem. But I'm legally bound to give them and prescribe the standard of care. Otherwise, my malpractice would be out the window. And how terrible is that? How terrible is that? To think that should they venture out and suggest some other stuff that they probably know deep down would be helpful, they wouldn't be covered should someone want to take legal action against them. And that's kind of the paradigm they get stuck in where it's like, yeah, I know this is potentially going to make them worse, but this is the right thing to do according to my, uh, my college. So, yeah, it, it's really kind of murky waters with that. And... Ah, that's why we, we do what we do and, and we keep up with it. Like I was saying earlier, regular seminars, continuing education, audiobooks, any book that comes out on the topic that's written by an expert in the area, I definitely grab and read. And it's really helped refine uh, my nutrition knowledge and, and working with people on this. But yeah, it all comes down to controlling hunger and cravings. And if you can't do that, forget it. But what does that really well is high quality proteins that are nutrient dense. Because we're a nation that's overfed but undernourished. It's like, why can't I eat all these calories but still stay hungry? It's because, well, the nutrient levels aren't high enough to suppress the hunger mechanism. And that's where your saturated fats are really important, right? That's why your MCT oil and coconut oil and avocados, like, they just shut off the hunger switch like crazy, right? They just, they literally kill ghrelin, deaden its steps, and then you're not hungry anymore. And when I did intermittent fasting years ago and I was using brain octane, which is a very purified extract of MCT oil, nothing demolished hunger better than that. And you're not even thinking of food until hours later. I couldn't believe it. And it was like, this is cool, right? But yet, if you look at fruits and vegetables and um, you know, fast-acting carbs, like they actually hire people to make this food addicting, right? And they're certainly going to put the wrong kind of oils and things in there to speed up your metabolism. So you need to be selecting foods that slow down your hunger, that keep you full, that have high amounts of nutrients. Otherwise, you'll never win this hunger battle and this craving issue. And that's why most people fail these these diets, or should I do this, or should I do that? And it's like, well, if you're not eating foods that control those two uh, metrics, then it doesn't matter. See, and again, like every time you talk, I always got to bring it back to like, you know, you just highlighted it again, you know, like this is something I've done. This is something I try. Like you can relay it on not only just because you read it, but you've tried it, you experimented it. And now you're talking about things that I've done five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years. Like you have this, this track record over time of all this stuff that you've done, you've tried and you can relate the related information saying like, yeah, I'm not doing it maybe right now because there's all this other stuff I have to experiment with too to be able to get a true understanding of where I actually sit with this, yep. which then brings me to water. Do we got some time left? What we time got, you got? We got another 10, 15. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about some water. So obviously we get into this whole canyon water, tap water, uh, remineralizing stones, uh, <laughs> you know, like like everything. So um, where, where do you sit? And then also where do you sit in that landscape? But more importantly, where do you sit into how important X amount of water is per day? Because to me, it's the same thing as like the fruit and vegetable argument. Nobody's eating 8 to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables every day. Nobody ever has through the course of humanity's history. And arguably, fruits and vegetables now are more 
nutrient lack than they ever have been because nutrient quality in the soil, um, not vine ripened. We probably actually need to eat like 40 servings of vegetables a day. Um, you know, and now our water's in that same category. It's sanitized water. You know, like there's no mineral content to it. You know, like we're just, there's huge things lacking in it. Is it really eight to 10 or is it really like 30 glasses? Like where do you sit in the whole water conversation? Yeah, water is a very, very important topic. I go through water with every single patient. I do a calculation based off body weight. This was taught to me years ago by Kevin Millay through TBM training. And he beat it into me better than anyone else did. I did four years of medical school. And, you know, okay, yeah, we would give your patients water. was kind of like the gist of it. But he, he would, like, soapbox about water forever. And sometimes I do in the treatment room as well. I'll get talking about it for three to five minutes because we have an epidemic of dehydration. People are simply not getting enough water. They're not getting enough water to their cells. And they are grossly underestimating how much water they need. And I tell you, when people come in with concerns... Doesn't matter what it is, energy, digestion, fatigue, joint pains, skin issues, brain fog, mental clarity. I reliably clear up their chief concern by 50% by getting them hydrated. So I make a point to stop, hit the pause button, and really get them to understand how important water is. Synovial fluid in the joints, like it just goes on and on. And so I calculated at one liter per 50 pounds body weight. So very easy to do. You're 150 pounds, you need approximately three liters a day. If you're sweating and highly active, you might even need more. Very, very important to not limit salt when you do this. Now, when you drink the required amount of water, I just suggested, and this is for people that have healthy functioning livers and kidneys, because if you've got kidney issues, you can't take that much water, but the vast population can handle a liter per 50 pounds. You must add proper salts. So pink salts, white salts, and the occasional table salt to make sure you get a little bit of iodine here and there if you're not eating a lot of seafood. Water is so important. When I get people to do this for two to four weeks, amazing things happen. They're like, wow, I was way under consuming water and I feel way better. Better energy, better digestion, better mental clarity. It just goes on and on and on. So this was beat into me many years ago, about 2014. So for the last six years, I've been soapboxing about water. And when you take the right amount of electrolytes and salt with it at the same time, it helps it get to the tissues because there's nothing worse than hearing someone say, I'm drinking all this pure water and I'm just running to the bathroom or the water's just kind of like sailing through them. It's not necessarily getting to the cells where you need it. And that's where the electrolytes and the salts are very important because your blood has a certain osmolarity, it's called. And that's just because there's a lot of solutes dissolved in it. And so pure water is just pure. There's there's really not much else in there but water. So that's why it's important to not... Uh, under consume the electrolytes because every time you pee you lose electrolytes so and sweat as well so very important a liter per 50 pounds body weight I'll say it for like the third or fourth time here look at that you have to have a bottle with you so you get hydrated you have to make sure that you're getting that six out of seven days a week Mm -hmm. and I carry a one liter bottle around with me you can't do this with cups mugs and glasses there's just no way you'll keep an accurate eye on it uh, it's too many refills as well. No one has time to go back to the water cooler that often, so get a good bottle, 750 or 1,000 mil, and just take it everywhere with you, and you'll just watch your health completely transform. Um, now, people will backfire and shoot themselves in the foot if they're over-consuming coffee and alcohol, because then it just throws your water balance off further, right? So those are some other things to think about, and, and I get into the nuances of how to micromanage those two with relation to water, but you know, generally speaking, 
a leader for 50 pounds is an amazing place to start with the right amounts of electrolytes. Yeah. And I always say to people too, even like with cognitive function, because obviously everything now, like we're inundated with like everything to be able to increase your cognitive capacity, cognitive function and all like, like this supplement, that supplement, this cream, this gel, this powder, this injection, all this kind of stuff. But the only thing I always say to people when it comes down to like water and being properly hydrated, if you stand in one end of a bathtub that's not full with water, and then you throw the blow dryer in, nothing's going to happen. You know, with our brain being over 80% water, like, you know, you can kind of see this this break of, you know, like the signals be traveling through the synapses properly. Yeah. You fill that bathtub full of water and you throw the blow dryer in there, you're going to get zapped. Totally. You know, we all know that. So, you know, like that's, that's the oversimplified version of our brain between you have like these two neurons and this synapse yeah. and the importance of water. Yep. So if you want to increase cognitive function, you got to hydrate. It's yep. as simple as that. Like nobody would get in that bathtub and throw in that hair dryer when the bathtub is full. You know, so if you can draw that correlation, how fast those signals are going to travel through your brain. And if you want to increase cognitive capacity, there's your answer right there. You don't need anything else. But again, but again, like when you walk into like a, a doctor's office, like these are the things that like a simple little advice, things like that, that it just isn't there. Big shortfalls. But, um, we said he had 10 or 15. I think it's been about 10. I want to be mindful of your time. And I just, I appreciate there's probably 1,700 more hours of conversation that could be had between us. I kind yes, of feel like it'd be one of those times <laughs> and stuff. But um, social media handles, the practice, yeah. everything, throw it out there. Um, it's all going out. Uh, best and uh, easiest place to get hold of me is going to be Instagram. So handle is at Drew.Jameson, and Jameson is J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N. I'm active on there every day. I give away a lot of free information, health tips, videos. I share all my workouts and travel experiences on there, and very accessible on Instagram. So definitely hop over there and give me a follow. I also have a professional page on Facebook. It's just Dr. Drew Jameson NB. And those are the two best places to find out more about me. It's got all the links to my clinical locations as well. I have a spot in Burnaby as well as New Westminster, just outside of the Vancouver area. And that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. appreciate your time and all the information. Um, uh, hopefully, we can get you to come on again. Because, again, we have quite a few more topics to cover. I'd love to. Thank you.